Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Tim Gregory will join us to discuss Meteorite. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, meteorites, they're fascinating objects that fall from space, but what can they tell us about how our world was made? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Tim Gregory. Dr. Gregory has a PhD in meteorite science, otherwise known as cosmochemistry, from the University of Bristol in the UK, formerly a research scientist at the British Geological Survey in Nottingham. He has appeared on BBC4's A Sky at Night, taught science lessons on BBC's Bite Size, and is a regular guest on BBC radio programs. He is now a nuclear chemist in Cumbria and continues to write about meteorites. His new book is entitled Meteorite, How Stones from Outer Space Made Our World. Dr. Gregory, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for the invitation. It's lovely to be here. Great book, fascinating book, which you talk about meteorite. Yeah. Very little about. Yeah. Why, why did you decide to write the book? So I'm actually a geologist by training. And for four years during my undergraduate degree, I learned about the science of rocks and how we can use rocks to figure out the sort of environments in which rocks formed and the processes that led to their formation. And alongside this, this interest in rocks that I've had for my whole life, I've also been really interested in space, like many people. And it turns out that you can combine an interest in rocks with an interest in space in the form of meteorites, in the, the study of cosmochemistry. And that's what I ended up doing for my PhD. And, you know, as I was reading the scientific literature and all these textbooks and going to meetings and conferences, I was finding out just all these mind-blowing things about these stones that fall from outer space. And I just thought, perhaps I should write a book about this to share the joys with people, because it doesn't really come more interesting than a rock that falls from outer space. And maybe that's a good place to start. I mean, we probably look up and think they're all the same kind of rock, but they can be very different in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we have about 60,000 meteorites in the worldwide collection, and they come from they come from hundreds of different worlds out there in the solar system. Most of them come from asteroids, it turns out, which you'll find in the solar system between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. But as well as the meteorites and the asteroids, we also have meteorites from the moon, So we, which is just one of those mind-blowing things that we have pieces of moon rock here on Earth that the Apollo astronauts didn't bring back. Nature delivers them on its own in the form of meteorites. And amazingly, we also have meteorites from Mars. This is something that you never really learn at school. We actually have pieces of Mars here on the Earth that we can study down microscopes and in chemistry laboratories. Before we humans even go there and get them ourselves, nature has delivered them to us from the sky in the form of meteorites. Just so many interesting little things in, in, in the world of meteorites. We hear about meteorites sometimes coming from other planets. How do we know they're from these other planets? How do we know they're just not another bit of rock? Right. That, that's a really great question. And <laughs> one of the really obvious answers is if you see a rock falling from the sky, it must be a piece of another planet, right? Although it, it's quite interesting that for it's only the last few hundred years that, that people, especially scientists, have really 
accepted that meteorites were real. Before that, you know, there are lots of historical accounts of meteorites falling, but at the time they put them down to the products of volcanoes and, and other earthly phenomena that we might know about. But it turns out they actually do come from other planets. And if you see one falling, you know, it didn't come from the Earth. But you can also tell once you get a meteorite into the lab, into the lab that it's not from the Earth because it's got they, they often have quite peculiar geological characteristics and very quirky chemistries that you just don't get in Earth rocks. They're, they're literally alien signatures that you can detect in these in these rocks, proving that the you know they're extraterrestrial. The size of these things also vary, and that changes a bit of their classification. What makes a meteorite a meteorite? Mm, that's a really good question. So. As, as in all areas of science, there's quite a bit of terminology and jargon in, in cosmochemistry and the study of meteorites. And, you know, I do go into some of that in my book, but I, I try to, I was sometimes even for my own benefit, just try and phrase things in, in, in non-sciencey language. But one of the things that most people get confused about, and I certainly got confused about, was the difference between things like a meteor and a meteoroid and a meteorite. And it can be quite difficult to remember, but for all intents and purposes, a meteor is exactly the same as a shooting star. And meteors, or shooting stars, you can call them what you want, they're caused by pieces of rock falling through the Earth's atmosphere. And most people have seen a shooting star. You can go out and see them on any night of the year. You just need, you just need a bit of patience and just look up, look at the sky, and you'll probably see a few flicker across. And these are caused by tiny pieces of rock fleeting through the Earth's atmosphere. And most of them actually get burned up and they, they get completely destroyed, they disintegrate, vaporize, they never make it to the surface. But the tiny pieces of rock that do make it to the surface, the ones that are large enough to survive the fiery entry, they're the meteorites. And so we've got meteors, which are the same as shooting stars, which are the streaks that you see across the sky, and the meteorites are the lucky survivors. All these different types of meteorites, are any more fascinating than others to you? <laughs> That's like asking me what my favorite cat is, and I've got four, so I can never quite choose. <laughs> they're all they're all interesting in their own ways, but I think if I if I if I had to choose some meteorite that was of particular interest to me, if I was forced to choose a favorite, I would probably say the chondrites. The chondrites are a type of meteorite that originate from asteroids, and being quite small worlds, you know, ast asteroids are they're generally the size of cities to small countries. These asteroids, they're so small that they never really got hot when they formed at the beginning of the solar system. And because they never got hot, they beautifully preserve the rock from which the asteroids and the planets coalesced four and a half billion years ago. And so the chondrites, these meteorites that come from unmolten asteroids, they preserve the raw building blocks that you need to build a planet. And you know, if, if you go far enough back in time through Earth's history, you will eventually find that it's made of the same things as the chondrite meteorites. But of course, the Earth is huge and it's got things like volcanoes and earthquakes and tectonics. So all of this, all of this primordial geology has been lost. It was lost billions of years ago. But in the chondrites, it's been frozen there. So I really think of chondrites as like the ultimate time machines. They're really the only way that we can go back to the very earliest history of our solar system. In fact, at the time before the planets, including the Earth, existed. If you think about it, ultimately, Earth is what it is because of all the meteorite impact. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, and all of that, all of that really, really old stuff, all of the stuff that happened right at the dawn of the solar system when the Earth was forming, 
it's been lost on the earth through geological time and geological processes. That information has been lost and those those sort of that that chapter of Earth's history has been overwritten to the point where we can't read it anymore. And so in studying the meteorites, we're not just studying these sort of random pieces of rock that fall to the Earth's surface from from outer space. We're actually studying the Earth's history as well, which, of course, if you go far back enough in time, is also our story as well, because, you know, we humans, like all of the other species that we share the Earth with, we're products of the Earth too. And so meteorites tell a part of our origin as well as the planets and as well as the solar systems. What about those other planets? Can we gain some insight into uh, the other planets in the solar system, maybe other planets in uh, the universe? Well, yeah, absolutely. You know, the raw building blocks that went together to make the Earth were very similar to the raw building blocks that went together to make Venus and Mercury and Mars. And even tucked deep inside the gas giants, there are cores that at one point probably would have resembled something like a rocky planet like the Earth. But these cores just happen to, they happen to coalesce a lot of gas as well as rock, which is why they're gas giants today. But, you know, all of the planets, if you go far enough back in time, their histories, their stories, if you like, they converge. And, and that story was laid out four and a half billion years ago during the formation of the solar system. And so we're not just learning about the Earth, we're learning about the whole solar system and, and every world in it, in fact. As you've been studying this, obviously, a very long time, was there anything that really fascinated you when you first came across learning about meteorites, the difference of aspects of meteorites in our natural history? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that really blew me away when I... This is, this is particularly relevant to my own research. So my, my own PhD and my, my postdoctoral research since is, is really focused on the timing of events in the early solar system. So I essentially date rocks in, in a non-romantic way. It's more in a chemical kind of way. I calculate how old they are based on their chemical and isotopic composition. And it turns out that it didn't actually take that long for the solar system to form. So before our solar system existed, it was a giant cloud of interstellar gas and dust called a nebula. And over time, that nebula began to contract inwards under its own gravitational pull. And eventually enough material was sort of pulled into the center to form the sun. And the dregs of material that never fell onto the sun, that's what the planets are made of and the asteroids and everything else. And it turns out that that process from you know this, this giant sort of formless cloud of interstellar gas into a system of planets that we find ourselves in today. It didn't actually take that long. It took less than 10 million years, which 10 million years to a non-geologist sounds like an awfully long time. But in a solar system that's four and a half thousand million years old, 10 million years is really the blink of an eye. And so it, it turns out you can go from no solar system to solar system in, in a geological click of a finger. It doesn't take long at all. Uh, that's incredible. There's a critical tipping point where everything just starts moving. Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the big mysteries about our own solar system is what exactly caused our nebula to collapse in the first place? Now, this is almost beyond the sort of limit to what meteorites can tell us, because meteorites can, there are a few quirks and, and exceptions to this, but generally meteorites can only take us as far back as the formation of our solar system, the they can't really, or at least not very easily, take us back further. And so it's a little bit of a mystery as to what sparked this collapse of the nebula. But there's there's one idea floating around the scientific literature, which I actually find quite compelling. There's a growing body of evidence that it's, that it's maybe a good idea, is that the thing that caused our solar system to collapse was a nearby star going supernova. And the sheer amount of energy 
released by this supernova explosion, the death of a giant star. This energy and the shockwaves, it rippled across the nebula and caused parts of it to collapse. And part of that collapsing nebula eventually became our solar system. There's a really nice sort of, there's something cyclical about that. You know, the, the, the death of one star led to the formation of many other stars by, by perturbing this nebula. And out of this nebula, lots of little starlets grew and around them planets formed. Uh, there's something there's something quite nice about that. It's almost like a phoenix, you know, out of the ashes of one dying star, another solar system came to be, which which is perhaps ours. Uh, would you guess then that places which are more dense with these exploding stars then would give birth to more solar systems a lot more rapidly, you know, center of galaxy? Like oh, absolutely. You know, in, in these nebula, we have beautiful, beautiful images of these nebula now um, from, from things like the Hubble Space Telescope, but also ground-based telescopes. And Within one nebula, you can have hundreds or thousands of stars forming. That's There's something quite nice about that. These nebula, I often think of them as stellar nurseries. They're like the nurseries where stars are born. And so it's likely that our own solar system actually probably had some siblings that formed out of the nebula as well. Although we'll, we'll likely never know exactly which stars in the Milky Way we formed alongside because, you know, over the last four and a half billion years, we've, we've drifted rather far apart in our orbits around the center of the Milky Way galaxy. So how do people go about actually studying these meteorites, collecting them, taking them to the lab? What, what sort of techniques do people use? Right, that's a great question. Now, unfortunately, meteorites fall pretty much evenly all across the entire planet. And so most of them actually fall into the sea or, or the ocean because 70% of the Earth is covered in water. But there are a few places on Earth where it's particularly likely that you'll find a meteorite, or at least more likely than average. And one of those places is actually Antarctica, and there are a few reasons why Antarctica is good for looking for meteorites. Firstly, meteorites are generally quite dark, and so they stand out on the on the bright snow. You can spot them a mile off. And secondly, there's this curious property of the Antarctic ice sheet. It flows over time and moves like a natural conveyor belt. And this like quirk of the flowing ice can actually cause meteorites to accumulate in vast numbers naturally over a million years or so. And so lots of meteorites come from Antarctica. Me as a researcher, so I remember in the first week of my PhD, I turned up at the University of Bristol, I arrived, I met my new advisor, I met my supervisor, and, and I said, right, I'm ready to get going, where's my meteorite? And, and they sort of looked at each other and said, well, that's your first job, you have to go and find one. So I thought, oh gosh, what am I going to do? Like, I can't just go out and look for a meteorite. So I did what all young grad students do and turned to eBay and actually bought the meteorite that I studied for my PhD off eBay which raised a few eyebrows in the office and certainly raised a few eyebrows in the university finance office when I tried to claim the money back on my research grant. But there it arrived in a, in a lovely protected box. And, and it was that rock that I studied for, well, five years of my life, learned some pretty amazing things from it. And it, and it came from eBay, which, is, which was really unexpected, actually. <laughs> Are these things common on eBay? I mean, sort of a one-off? No, it, it turns out there's actually quite the meteorite market out there. It, it's not just scientists who kind of seek meteorites and want to buy them. There's a there's a very dedicated and passionate community of meteorite collectors out there. I guess it's like anything, right? You get you get stamp collectors or people who collect pens or I don't know anything. It just happens that there's a community of people who love buying meteorites, and so there's a whole market for that sort of thing. And there are. There are annual fairs dotted around the place, but meteorite is quite, um, eBay is quite good for meteorites, I must say. I, I have bought quite a few off there in my time. <laughs> 
Well, now I'm, now I'm quite curious about this eBay uh, meteorite. I mean, what, what was it like? I mean, what did you learn from it? Was it a particularly unique meteorite? <laughs> what did you get out of it? Right. So this meteorite that I bought from eBay for my PhD, it was found in the Sahara Desert sometime around 2010. And it had a total mass of 100 kilograms, which actually for meteorite standards is pretty huge. It's very rare that you get meteorites that are 100 kilograms. And I bought a piece of this meteorite that was about the size of an apple. So it was, it was only a few hundred grams and it was it was a few hundred dollars, a few hundred pounds in, in, in British money. It wasn't it wasn't that expensive and it arrived in Bristol. And the first thing that I did was slice it open. And it turns out that this particular type of meteorite, which I did know before I bought it, was one of these chondrites. And so it originated from an asteroid that never melted, primordial building blocks of the planets. It was the dust that I studied for four and a half years. And one of the really cool things that I found, actually, was that there are many, many different types of dust from which planets and meteorites are formed. And all these different types of dust, they formed in different parts of the solar system at different times by different mechanisms. They're a real mishmash. They're a real sort of pick and mix, you know, lots of different types of dust all mixed together. And the particular type of dust that I studied, it was honestly, I've actually never seen it with my naked eye because it's so small. Um, it's about the width of a human hair, these tiny little bits of dust that I looked at. And I extracted them out of the meteorite using, of all things, a dental drill. So, you know, as well as buying things off eBay, I also bought things from a dental company, which raised a few more eyebrows. And I extracted them out of the meteorite and dated them. And it turns out that these individual pieces of dust that I pulled out of this meteorite were as old as the solar system itself. They were 4,567,000,000 years years old, which is a 10-digit number. Um, it's quite an easy number to remember as well, actually. It's 4.567 billion. So 4.567 billion. And that was that was one of the cool things that I found in my PhD. And um, yeah, I guess looking back, it kind of does blow my mind a bit that, you know, you've got dust as old as the solar system in a rock that you bought from eBay. Who'd have thought it? <laughs> Well, I, I would say not a bad purchase. Yeah, they got a five-star review, put it that way. <laughs> what, what's your work involving now? And what do you think the big questions for meteorite researchers uh, is going forward? Right, that's a great question. So, so since I wrote Meteorite and since it's been published, I've actually taken a sideways career step. It, it turns out that the analytical tools that we use to, to distinguish the, the, the peculiar chemistry and the precise composition of meteorites is applicable to to lots of different things. And so I'm using the same sort of lab skills that I used to study meteorites, but now I'm in the nuclear industry in the north of England. And so it's a slight sideways career step. And, you know, I guess a, a common thread, a common interest that I've had for quite a while now, and this is this is true of the study of meteorites and nuclear science, is the, the future of humanity and how science will play a part in that. And I think certainly the study of meteorites plays a, a large part in the future of humanity because we will one day become an interplanetary species. We have to, or we're going to go extinct. And I think we'll go and, well, I think we have to go and settle on the surface of Mars, the surface of the moon, and perhaps even beyond. And I don't think it's unreasonable to think that one day we will be mining the worlds from which meteorites come from. We will be, we will be mining asteroids and making spacecraft in space from the material from which asteroids are made and using those vessels to go out and explore the wider solar system. And so I kind of like this. While meteorites tell us about our deep past, they're also a large part of the future of humanity as well. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful and optimistic and I just wish I could live long enough to see it. Maybe I will. Well, we were just talking with Dr. Tim Gregory. He's the author of the new book, Meteorite, How Stones from Outer Space Made Our World. 
Dr. Gregory, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Thank you.